Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence this morning. And we thank you that even when we cannot see it, that you have never, ever let me go. That you hold us, you keep us, you sustain us. You're quick to forgive us. You're there to support us. You give us the wisdom we need. You give us the comfort. You give us the healing. And this morning as we have already sung, you alone are God. You're our King, our Creator, our Provider. And now, Lord, as we open this Word, this living Word, I ask that you would speak to us and teach us and instruct us according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're building a wall. We're in the book of Nehemiah. We're following the life and the story of this man. This man who was simply just a cupbearer. That meant that he drank the wine before the king to make sure that the wine had not been poisoned. And one day, Nehemiah, while living his life, had a conversation with another man who had been to Jerusalem. And when he came back, he looked at the man, Hananiah, and he said, How is it? And Nehemiah looked at I mean, Hananiah looked at Nehemiah and said, dude, it is rough. It is bad. It is in ruins. The people are depressed. The city's falling apart. The temple looks like a, a rundown ghost town. And Nehemiah heard those words. And those words just pierced to his heart. So much so that the scripture says that Nehemiah began to weep and pray. In fact, when he wept and prayed, he cried out. He said, Lord, do something right now. And yet God chose not to do something right now. In fact, if we read the story and we begin to understand it, that Nehemiah actually had to pray for four months. But as he began to pray in that four months, what we understand is that God was working in him. God was working in the heart of the king. And God, even behind the scenes, was preparing the people of Jerusalem for a task that was ahead of them. We shifted on over to chapter 2. And when we got there with Nehemiah in chapter 2, we understand that he was now ready to leave the palace of Persia. To go into the junkiness of Jerusalem. To lead a people in what would no doubt be a daunting task. In chapter 3, Nehemiah got there. And the scripture says that when he got there, rather than just immediately jumping in and starting to throw rocks around and trying to restack them to build a wall, it says that he rested. He rested for three days. And then under the cover of darkness on a moonlit night, It says that he walked around the city and he began to assess, if we're going to do this job, what do we need? If we're going to do this job, what's it really going to cost? And he came back with his plans and he stood in front of the leadership of the people. And he said to the people, this is what we have to do. And he began to motivate them and encourage them. And and one of the things that I thought it was very important that the scripture pointed out to us was rather than just we're rebuilding a wall or rather than than we are just rebuilding a temple. He said, this project is to the glory and the honor and the worship of God. He laid the foundation. He said, we're doing this 
for God. And this people who had for now decades been depressed and now decades lived in oppression, all of a sudden they were feeling like they could come out of that cocoon of despair and they could rise up. One of my favorite football commercials is Samuel L. Jackson when he starts saying, rise up, and he's talking about the Falcons, and he says, we're going to do it. Now, they don't always do it. We know that. But the commercial is awesome. I'm just telling you. And that's what Nehemiah is doing to the people, Jesse. He's saying, rise up. Rise up. Now, this thing is going well. I mean, the king has said, not only can you go and I'll get somebody else to taste my wine, and not only can you go and I'll write your letter so you can um, pass safely. He said, not only that, but I'll give you some timber and lumber out of my prized forest. He goes there and the people are like, yeah, let's do it. And it says that they're halfway through the wall. And now the enemy starts rising up. Now the enemy's gotten angry because they really didn't think it would happen. I mean, what it hadn't happened in 400 years, why is it going to happen now? And now all of a sudden, the wall's being built. In fact, if you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll start there with verse 1. But you know, I think, I think something very important for us to understand is that there's an epidemic in our land today. In our community. Oh, it's not an epidemic of the flu or AIDS or whatever we might think of when we think of that word. I think it's an epidemic of discouragement. Where's the hope? I go to work. I earn a living. I come home and pay bills and there's not enough money. I turn on the news and I find out that that four people in our community have been shot. Somebody dies in a house fire. This is going on and that is going on. And and families are falling apart and we go, what does it matter? I'll just get through this and go to heaven. (laughs) That's where the people really, that sounds harsh, but that's where the people of Jerusalem were. Satan loves discouragement. In fact, one man that I read said that discouragement was the language of heaven. In fact, it's highly contagious. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody in the room can be having a good time and then you let one person come in who ate lemons before they got there and all of a sudden everybody in the room is like, whoa, that ain't really going to happen, is it? You know, we've kind of been through that season as a church. We've been through that season of financial difficulty. We've been through that season of transition around in our community and a lot of different things going on and all these kind of things. And and we hear and we hear and we hear and we're going. I mean, even the news is against us. They're like, man, Clayton County this today. Well, I'm going to tell you what. That is one little report because when I walk the streets and I meet the people, I hear hope. I see people working hard. I see people coming together. I see people liking and loving and being here. But discouragement. So what is discouragement? What causes discouragement? Maybe that's where we begin in our outline today. We'll start with the external causes of discouragement. Let's look in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding 
the wall. He became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side. What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. So I'm going to tell you that there are two main types of discouragement that Satan uses. The first one that he uses is ridicule. In verses 1 and 2, we have Sanballat. Now, Sanballat, is, this is the third time that he's been mentioned. He is the stiffest opponent to Nehemiah. Each time he's rejecting, each time he's ridiculing, each time he's making Nehemiah think that the job that he's doing can't be done or the job that he's doing is not worthwhile or the fact that he's not the man for the job. And can I tell you that men and women who will face bullets in, the, in, in harm's way will crumble under the ridicule and laughter of their peers. Because when you begin to attack the the self-esteem, the worth, the value, all of a sudden now we're going to go, ooh, maybe they're right. I'm not able. I can't. Who am I? You know, Moses was there in chapter 3 when God said, Moses, go back and set the people free. And Moses said, who am I? Who are you? What if they? And God said, rise up. And he did, and he went back. Ridicule, I told you, the language of Satan. Men who will face bullets will crumble under it. He called them feeble. It means withered and and miserable. And he taunted them with five questions. He said, what are they doing? Will they be able to restore their wall? He was questioning their commitment. Will they offer sacrifices? Oh, these people are worshiping and praying, but surely worshiping and praying are not enough. What are they going to do? Burn another incense? Are they going to offer another animal? Each time whittling away at what they were doing. Will they finish in a day? He was questioning their tenacity. Can they bring these stones back to life? Inferior supplies. Can I tell you one of the things that's very easy in ministry to do is to look and say, well, boy, if my church had all the money their church had, look what we could do. Or if we were over here, you know that if we were over here, we'd probably be like this big or this would be going on. And God never calls us to anything but surrender, submission, and obedient service to Him. Because I'm going to tell you, unless the Lord build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. God, we believe that where you've placed us is all that we need. What you've given us is what you want us to have. And God, you didn't qualify and say, well, when I give you the very best stuff, then you you will be able to work for me. No, he said, take what I've given you. You know the parable of the talents, right? One he gave five, one he gave three, one he gave one. And he said, to this one you did well because you invested it, you were a good steward. To this one you did well, you invested it, you were a good steward. To the one who just went and hid it, he said, ooh, I'm going to take that. 
So it isn't our task to look and say, what do we lack? It's our task to look and say, what do we have? And how will we use what we have to the glory and the honor of God to change this world and to let people see that he is the answer? All of us will have sand ballots in our life. If you've been out of school for a while and you try to go back, somebody's going to go, oh, you're too old to go back to school. Or if you try to get a job that will improve your family, oh, you can't do that job. You ought to just stay where you are. Or you hit a season of blessing and everybody begins to say discouraging words. Ridicule is a tool of Satan. He used Sanballat. Satan used Sanballat to try to stop Nehemiah. But he didn't stop there because then there was another man named Tobiah. Now Tobiah shows up in verse 3 and he wants to be the comedian. He wants to stand in front of all the people and make a joke and make the people of, of Israel the butt of that joke. He says, Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, what are they building? Even a fox? Can't you picture it? I mean this wall is already four and a half feet high. It's many feet wide, and he's saying that the smallest of animals could come through and tumble it over. And don't you know all the people going, oh. <laughs> and you know, you grab your stomach, you over-exaggerate, you put your hand over your mouth, and you point, and then they begin to hear it, and they go, ooh, maybe he's right. Oh, but they didn't stop there. Sanballat opened his mouth. Tobiah opened his mouth. Discouragement on top of discouragement. And these people are tired. And, and in their tiredness, they began to hear it. Well, then another guy rose up. His name was Geshem. And Geshem began to also be a, one of the ones who were trying to discourage them. But let me tell you, even the greats of Scripture faced and overcame discouragement. Goliath ridiculed Davis. David, not Davis. Even though I like Davis. And I'm glad he's home. And here today, Goliath ridiculed David. And what did David say? Something like, you come to me with a sword and a spear, and I come to you in the name of the Lord. He knew where his power was. He knew what the trick was. He knew that discouragement was not going to get him that day. Jesus I mean, don't you think Jesus might have just thought at some point, hey, God, can I call a timeout? I'm going to go ahead and die on this cross for these people. And I'm going to shed my blood, and I'm going to go into that tomb, and I'm going to come out on the third day, and we are going to conquer death, hell, and the grave. But, hey, God, can we pause time for like 30 seconds here and let me just go ahead and wipe these little Roman soldiers out? I mean, they are ridiculing him. They're like, oh, you can't do this and you won't do that. And he knew the whole while that he could come off of that cross. And he knew with the breath out of his nostrils that he could annihilate them. But the scripture says that he bore the shame. Because the cause that he was about was greater than wiping out a few insignificant Roman soldiers. Now, Mount Zion, listen to me. We're in the trench right now. Financially, we're in the trench. Relationally, as we try to build bridges to the people that we have not yet in our community, it's work. It takes time. 
And when it doesn't have immediate gratification, it's easy to say, somebody else is going to have to go. Satan wants us tired. He wants us defeated. He wants to ridicule us. And that is an external cause of discouragement. And it will literally cripple people. But you see, there's another cause of, ex- of uh, discouragement that's external. It's oppression. It's the loss of hope. It's repression, if you will. It's the, it's the feel of, feeling of powerlessness to affect change. What I do won't make a difference. How I do it won't make a difference. So look at me in, with me in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. He says, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonite, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. (laughs) Oppression. We can't. We're powerless. What's the difference? What difference can we make? And it says, when it says that all these people were here, there, and yonder in verse 4, it's a, it's a, it's a throwback, if you will, or it's the idea of from the north, the south, the east, and the west, that the enemy is no matter where we go, there they are. The Samaritans were to the north. Ashdod was to the west. The Ammonites were to the east. And Geshem was to the south. Where can we turn? If we turn there, they're going to defeat us. If we turn here, they're going to defeat us. (laughs) Mount Zion. We cannot allow ourselves to be discouraged. We cannot allow ourselves to feel like that that we can't make a difference. We must keep on keeping on. We will work. We will continue. We will reach. We will love. We will pray. We will share the gospel. We will persevere no matter what we face. We must keep on going. Because you see, again, Satan, his goal, his desire, let's discourage them and they will not continue that's the external causes of of uh, discouragement but there's also some internal causes of discouragement look in verse 10 I'll read in verse 9 just for continuity but we prayed to our God and posted a guard night and day to meet this threat meanwhile in other words while we were posting the guard and meanwhile what we were addressing the threat The people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Fatigue is an internal cause of discouragement. The laborers were growing. Meanwhile, they said in Judah. Now, it's interesting to me that it started in Judah. You know who Judah is, the tribe of Judah? The tribe of Judah is the tribe of David, King David, the mighty warrior, the one who's killed, Saul has killed this and David's killed that. 
If you can take down the lead tribe, the power tribe, if you can knock out the one that everybody's looking to, then everybody else is going to go, well, if they can't make it, surely I can't make it, and so I might as well give up too. They were tired. Do you remember when Elisha had his thing going on, and God said, I tell you what I want you to do, I want you to lay down and rest? There's a spiritual principle there. You rest, you Don't grow weary in doing good, but when you do grow weary, you take a nap. Yeah. Jesus, when things were going on, he would say, you know what? I got to get away from y'all. I got to go up to the mountain for a minute. I got to have a breather. I got to recharge myself because my task is huge and it's great. And I don't want to get discouraged or distracted from accomplishing it. Fatigue. Is an internal cause of distress. If you're fatigued today, watch out. Tiredness can lead to you becoming discouraged. (laughs) Do you remember maybe about three years ago when we realized that we were going to have to go through a financial, climb a financial hill here at Mount Zion Baptist Church. And we realized that there was more month than there was money and that the income that we had wasn't going to be enough and we had to do whatever it took to stay alive. You remember how we would gather and we'd have yard sales, we'd walk through the woods and look for metal. We would go through the buildings and find anything that was copper or metal or stainless steel. And we would walk around and we would gather it and we would load it on trailers and we would show up at the recycling center and say here it is yeah and God provided man the newness was on the job we knew what we had to do we're kind of in that season now where the newness has worn off and we're like oh no no we got to breathe And then we got to get back at it. Because you see, fatigue can lead to frustration. That's another external cause of discouragement. Go back to verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Now, you know what intrigues me about that? Is that these are the same people who in verse 6 where it says, We rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all of their heart. So in verse 6 they're working with all of their heart. In verse 10 they're looking around and saying there's so much crud on the ground we can't even do the job. You know there was more rubble in verse 6 than there was in verse 10. So what changed? What changed was the attitude. What changed was the the passion, the energy, the motivation, the drive. They had gotten tired. And Mount Zion, when we get tired, we have to remember why. Why are we doing this? Why are we fighting to be the church at Mount Zion? We are fighting to be the church at Mount Zion because God is bringing people to us from all over the world who do not know Him as Savior, who have not been introduced to Him as the one who redeems them through the blood. And we cannot grow weary in doing good. We must continue to to preach until all know and proclaim until men and women and boys and girls come to him as Savior. That's what we must do. And will we have to go around rubble and over things? Yes. 
but his one precious child bowing their head conquering their fear of water to say that I will get in there today and I will let all of you know that Jesus is the one that I'm trusting. Is that worth it? Yes, it is. Is one little person who comes to us with a family and they'll say, Pastor, can I give my heart to Christ? Yes. This morning, my friend Patty gave her heart to Christ. I said, would you like to know Jesus? She said, that's why I'm here. And she bowed her head and she said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Be my Savior. Can I tell you, for for every little Jason and for every Patty, Russell, what's the number? In three miles, there's 92,000 people. Statistically, you know overwhelmingly that many of them do not know Christ. And I can tell you from the numbers, they certainly aren't in church. When we want to give up, we just need to ride the neighborhoods, see the people, see the faces, understand that without Christ, the scripture says that they are bound and condemned to eternal separation from God. Now, that's the nice way to say that. The harsh way to say that is they're going to hell. And when you read the scripture, you understand that nobody wants to go to hell. And you as a believer, as one who has been bought by the blood of Christ, should do whatever it takes to keep one person out. You remember Lazarus when he got down there? He begged up and he said, "Can I? will you send somebody? Can I go? Will you just let them know that they don't want to be here? And I believe the answer was, well, if they didn't believe it here and didn't see it there, this isn't going to make any difference. You say, what is my role? As long as you have breath, it is to see people redeemed, lives put back together, addictions destroyed, families healed. Fatigue is an cause of discouragement frustration is a cause of discouragement but keep reading with me because fear is a cause of discouragement meanwhile verse 10 the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall also our enemies said before they know it or see us we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work then the Jews who lived near them came and told us Ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. When I was a little boy, I loved to go hunting with my uncle. I would much rather hunt with him in the morning than in the evening because in the morning the sun was coming up and I wasn't going to have to sit in the dark. In the evening, he would take me and put me in the middle of the woods and I knew that dark was coming and I knew that he would not be there Before the sun went down, it would be very dark outside. And I would sit in that little tree. Usually it was cold. And I would try not to be afraid. And I would just not cry. I would. I would just be like, oh, I wish he would come on, God. If you'll get me out of here today, I will never go back. And then pretty soon I'd see his light coming through the woods. And I'd hear his feet crunching the leaves. And I would go, he can't see me crying. No, sir. 
How'd it go? Boy, I like that today, Uncle Jack. That was awesome. I'm coming back next weekend. But I'm telling you, man, fear is a real thing. Fear will keep people in a pocket of life that they think they cannot overcome. And I want to tell you what the scripture says, that in Christ we are more than conquerors. If God is for you, who can be against you? In all your ways acknowledge him and he makes your path straight. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things are added unto you. You see, Satan wants to make us think that no matter where we turn, there's the enemy and the enemy's greater than we are. And he wants us to think that he wins in the end and we get the book of Revelation and we get to read it and we know he's defeated and we know that God is for us and that he will help us to overcome. And we no longer need to be cowering in fear, but we need to be standing in boldness. Facing, conquering overcoming these things. What is the cure for discouragement? The first one is to focus on God. Seek God's help. Go back with me to verse 4. We already know that in chapter 1, Nehemiah spent four months praying and seeking and crying out in dedicated moments and times of prayer. We know in chapter 2, before he had to give the king an answer, he sought the Lord. And here we have him in chapter 4. It says, verse 4, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Who's despising them? Sanballat, Tobiah. Geshem, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Nehemiah is praying, God, wipe them out. Now, that's not pretty. But he said, we have a high and holy task. And that high and holy task is to rebuild your city, to rebuild your wall, to rebuild your temple. And God, these people are trying to stop us from your divine appointment. God, don't let us be the ones that drop the ball. Not on my watch, not on my section. God, if it's my section of the wall, I want to see it completed. And God, these little gnats keep swarming around. And you got to do something. You request God's help. You focus on the word. In verse 9, he prayed again. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Do you see that? Man, that is huge. He, up here in verse 4 and 5, he said, God, you got to do something. And we are going to keep on doing the job. We're not stopping. God, you protect us. And then when the threat became real and imminent. 
It says that we prayed to our God and we posted guards. We prayed, God, it's all it's your strength, your glory, your honor, your power, your might. You're going to be the one that makes it happen. And God, we're going to put guards out there for those that sneak through to wipe them out. You pray like it's all up to God. You work like it's all up to you. And that's what Nehemiah taught us here. When we focus on God, when we seek God's help. That really is verse 13. It leads over into it. Now, we need to be flexible. Because in verse 9, we posted a guard. Verse 13, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. You see, Nehemiah, again, in chapter 1, he had sought the Lord. In chapter 2, he had assessed the situation. In chapter 3, he had mobilized the people. He had a plan. He had a purpose. But inside of his plan and his purpose, he had a place for flexibility so that when the situation changed, he could keep on doing what God called him to do, but he could adjust. I don't think he had guards on the wall as part of his original plan. But when the need for guards on the wall became a requirement, he was ready to take the step. And you see, we've got a plan. We are Mount Zion Baptist Church. We are the church at Mount Zion. We are the church that says to this community, you come, we want to meet you, we want to know you, we want you to be welcome, and we want you to be wanted, and we want you to be needed. And there are times that we will stay on that, and then there are times that we have to sidestep, and we will be ready and flexible. To meet it. Nehemiah sought the Lord. Nehemiah was flexible to respond to the situations around him. The next thing that you would see about the cure for discouragement is remember who God is. Go to verse 14. After I look things over. What is he looking over? He's got workers who have a sword in one hand and a rock in the other. And they're rebuilding the wall. He looked things over. After I saw how we adjusted the plan, he said, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember who? The Lord. Don't remember that you have a sword in your hand. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Ooh, did you hear what he said? Fight for your family. How many times have you heard me say, whoever wants the next generation the most is going to get them? I believe that. And mom and dad and grandma and granddaddy, it is time for you to fight for your families. If anybody in the world ought to know who is for them, it ought to be your kids. And you say, well, mine are grown. No, you still fight for them. Mine are little. You fight for them. You set worship as a priority. You set Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I want to tell you a story. You know who J.D. Drew is? Does anybody know who that is? Plays baseball for the Boston Red Sox. His father had a commitment to church. J.D. wanted to play baseball. J.D.'s dad wouldn't let him play baseball because it kept him out of church on Sunday. And he said, J.D., if God's plan for you to play baseball 
professional baseball is what you're supposed to do. God will make a way. And he let him start playing. He was 13 years old. He became the named the best baseball player in America at Florida State. He was drafted right after that by the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, he chose not to go. He signed a contract the next year for some $80 million. And he was on the World Series team for the Boston Red Sox. I'm not saying J.D.'s dad had it all right, and I'm not saying anybody that plays baseball is all wrong. But he had a priority. And he said, our priority is God. Now, if baseball is a part of your life, then you make that a priority, and you figure out how, on top of that, we are going to dedicate time to worship. When your kids come home and say, well, everybody's doing it, and say, well, I'm not everybody's daddy. But in my house, we're not going to do that. I remember my mom saying, Chris, I'm not everybody's mama, and you're not going to that party. Oh, I was so irritated. But now I'm so glad. It is not your job to be popular with your kids. It is your job to raise them in godliness. Popularity is a side point. Remember who God is. You say, well, is there another place in Scripture you could help me understand that? I think there is. Turn over in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles. It's on the left side of where we were just now. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat is facing an enemy that's greater than he is times three. And he's got to stand up in front of the people and tell them, look, we're in trouble, but our God is greater. In verse 5 of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it says, Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, don't look over that. Because in the life of a person like Jehoshaphat, the word Lord meant boss, supreme being, the one who's in control, the one who I trust, and the one who I'll follow. Lord, the God of our ancestors, Are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to your descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's reminding himself. He's reminding the people who God is. Are you not the God of power? Are you not the God of might? Are you not the God who led us and gave us this promised land? Are you not this, this, this? You are the one that we will follow. You are the one that we will trust. Discouragement is real. But there is a cure. Seek God's help. Be flexible. Remember who God is. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more or to contribute to online giving, please visit www.mzbc.org. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear more, simply click on the Sermons tab or subscribe to the Simple Truth Podcast through iTunes. Thank you for supporting Mount Zion, where you are welcome, wanted, and needed.